rise and shine. We welcome you here this morning and online, those who are able to join us there. What a blessing it is. Hey, we're going to be in the book of Jude, so hopefully you all have your Bibles ready to go and your ears are open and ready to go and, and uh, hearts softened by just spending time worshiping our Lord in song, singing truth. It'd be from your heart of what we sang and, uh, and uh, minister to your heart. If you're here for the very first time, we welcome you, and uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and just happy that you're able to join us. I know many are traveling, so we continue to pray for safe travels, for certainly for those who are coming and, and those who will be leaving over the next couple of days as well. So again, um, lots of activities going on at the church. Summer's coming up. We've got some plans. Uh, I want to put a, a kind of a plug out there for anyone who's wants to do any some of the construction some of the re improvements on the outside of the building uh we're preparing for a, a, an additional parking lot so some of you are saying where's the park we're planning on a new parking lot in the back so uh if anyone wants to be part of that and wants to work with us uh we're going to be doing some construction and planning for all those phases the re redoing in the front as well so anyway just so uh let us know just make sure it's be known to myself or or to, to Rich, one of the guys, and we'll make sure you're on the distribution list for that, uh, those activities. So with that said, hey, there's a lot of here in the verses here that we're going to take in Jude uh, chapter 1, the only chapter, verses 5 through 11. It's a lot to cover here today. Let us pray. Father, we um, thank you, praise you for allowing us to be able to come this morning, to be able to freely come, freely be able to sit and worship you, with no fear, no trembling, just be able to come and sit to allow you to minister to our hearts. And so I pray for every hearer today, Lord, that you would just speak to their hearts in a way that they know without a doubt you're speaking to their hearts directly and personally. Holy Spirit, have your way. By your word, just have your way in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Jude. Jude, the author the younger half-brother of Jesus, life transformed once he saw and heard and experienced his brother, the Messiah, God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, on the cross, and then after his resurrection, everything changed for his life. Everything. Once he saw that he is the Messiah, that he died on the cross for the sins of the world, changed his half-brother's life radically. Isn't that our story as well? Once you were exposed and understand that who Jesus Christ is and what he's did on the cross, and he's resurrected on the third day, he's alive, loving you, wants to intercede with you, wants a personal life with you, it changed my life. He changed my life. And I hope and pray if you've been born again and regenerated, you had a changed life. Not someone, some modified or some, some slight adjustments to your life, but radically changed within. Now you love God. You want to be obedient to God. You want to please Him in all the things you say and do. You desire these things. Yes, we're not perfect, but we're pursuing Him. We're not perfect until he takes us home and we're in his presence in heaven. Amen? So here's Jude, his half-brother. He comes and he writes a letter. He wanted to start by saying, hey, let's just talk about the fact that we're saved and we're going to heaven. And let's talk about our salvation, how that happened by faith and putting our faith in Jesus and him alone and what his finished work on the cross is. And we can rest in him. We don't have to play religion. We don't have to do all these traditions. We don't have to do all this junk that's out there that got, man had brought into Judaism, who, the Gentiles who were just living in the world and the cares of the world. Oh, we don't have to do that anymore. We could just live for him and allow him. He has a plan and a purpose for our lives. He saved us. He, oh, he, he purchased our sin so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin. Man, if you've experienced that 100-pound gorilla of sin coming off your back, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. You remember the day of your salvation. I really do hope you do remember the day of your salvation. That means that you had a radical change in your life. 
But if you don't remember the day of salvation, you don't remember that radical change, the day you've committed your life to Christ, perhaps today's the day you do. Perhaps today's the, the transformed life will take place. So Jude is warning the church. He wanted to talk to him about the common salvation we saw in the beginning of this letter. But then he had a switch because the Spirit of God came upon him and said, no, 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 no. You, Jude, what you need to tell my people, tell the church, tell the, my, 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 the, your brothers, your sisters in the Lord. I need you to exhort the church about apostasy, about what is happening. People are turning away from me and the truths of God, the word of God, and bringing in the things of this world and this demonic things are coming into the church. Apostasy, it's the greatest problem in the church today. Did you know that? It's the greatest problem. Churches are dying off because they've walked away from the truth of God and now they're peddling their wares and peddling their little things to make money. It's just a business. It's just an organization. It's blasphemy. Jude warns the church to attend earnestly for the faith. You must contend earnestly for the faith in verse 3. We must deal with these certain men and women these certain men, these certain women, these ungodly men, these ungodly women who have crept around in the church secretly, we see in verse 4. They've kind of mingled in and just kind of blend in. It's, it kind of looks like a Christian. They come to church. They must be a Christian because they come to church. <laughs> Doesn't mean that. Just because they say they're a Christian at, at work doesn't make them a Christian. We know they're not a Christian. We know they're not a believer because the scripture tells us they deny the Lord. They deny who Jesus Christ is and what he did. They uh, twist the grace of God. Right? Who are you to judge me, brother? I live by the grace of God. I get to live however I want to live and God will love me and take me to heaven anyway. Oh, you've been bewitched. That's not what the scripture says. Not only does he has grace, but he also has justice. And as a father, you just can't be just part of the family and live however you want to live in the family. You must be obedient to your heavenly father in that family. You don't get to just radically live your life under the roof of your father. You have to obey the rules or the word of God, the guidance, the boundaries, because he loves you and I so much, he puts us boundaries or we will kill ourselves. Did you know that? Our Father loves us so much, if he didn't have boundaries, we would literally go and we would kill ourselves. That's why we have rules. Kids, don't play in the street. Kids, don't stick your wet little finger in the light socket. Kids, don't drink those little poisonous things we, we poison ourselves by putting it around our house as it is. Drano is not Kool-Aid. We have rules. We have boundaries. Why? Because we're trying to keep our kids safe. God does the same thing for us. He loves us so much, he gives us boundaries to say, no, 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 that could really hurt you if you go down that path. Regardless of how you feel, it can hurt you. So we see these godly men, this ungodly men creeping in and they're impacting the, the beneficiaries. Wow. The, the believers within this devastating and devastating to within the church. They're creeping in and they're starting to put in things in their minds that, that are going contrary to the word of God. Drawing people away from the fellowship of God. Following away from the truths of God. They, this is how they work. Because they say, oh, I got some new revelation from God. Let me sell you my book or let me tell you about it. Let me come follow me. Come to this other place. Go follow me in, on my blogs and go do that. They're always trying to peel you away from sound doctrine the scripture, and put it onto some tradition or some man-made thing that's not in the scripture. They twist the grace of God. Well, we see here Jude gives it very clear examples, three examples of certainty of God's judgment on these certain men. Look over here in verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that 
the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. There are consequences when you start playing around and trying to mess with God's people and go against God. There's, there's consequences. It's like you may think you're getting away with it. God knows, and He gives some examples to Jude to give to us. Jude knew he wasn't telling them something new. He were all pastors always remind the people. Why does a pastor keep saying that? Because I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to remind you of these things to warn you. Because we forget sometimes. We think, oh, it doesn't apply to me. It's not a big deal. I'm okay with this. I'm 90, I, I'm 60% for God. Just don't, God, just don't mess around with the other 40% of my life. <laughs> I want to live that however I want to live. No, God's like, no. It's 100%, man. It's all in, complete, all your heart, mind, souls, are in, you're all mine. Do you want me completely in your life? See, he was just putting out, letting them know. They, they had already been taught the fact that there's some dangers here. But they needed to hear it once again and to apply it to their present situation because they had a tendency to forget or to, eh, no big deal. Does it apply to me? No big deal. Maybe not a big deal for them, but it's not a big deal for me. It's a big deal when it comes in and affects the body of Christ. Cancer never stops at one part of the body. Do you understand that? Once cancer starts somewhere in the lungs, it only a matter of time is throughout your systemic system. That little thing on your nose, you, oh, that's, you got cancer. You realize that left unattended, it can get worse. It can affect your face. It can affect your body, your whole internal system. You have to deal with it. Because it's going to creep in. How'd you get that little spot? How'd you get that? I, it's crept in. See, the Lord having saved the people out of Egypt, he says here. Having saved, he's this very first example. Remember, Jude reminds him of what happened in Numbers chapter 14 when God delivered the people of Israel out of the slavery of Egypt. They went out of Egypt without unattended delays, come to this place called Kadesh Barnea. And it's right on that threshold to go into the promised land that God had promised Abraham. We're going to people coming out of Egypt. We're going to the promised land. We're going to, we know today, Israel. We're going to go into the promised land. God has given the, his people, the Israelites, this land. But at this moment, just before he could break in to go into the land, fear and a lack of faith, unbelief came in. It said, you know the story. You set off the spies. Spies came back and said, incredible bland, man. This is incredible what God's given us. Ten had unbelief and two had belief. And the congregation, the whole nation of Israel, went with those ten that said had none unbelief. God said it was their land. Why didn't you take the step of faith and go into the land? Because of fear. Because of unbelief. And so what happens here, even though at that moment, all of the nation of Israel, we're talking about three million people by this time, had decided to go with unbelief against God's word and say, no, we're not going into the promised land because there's giants in the land. Wait a minute. Don't you just remember that God literally... You've been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years and God brought you out of that and now you're afraid to take a step in because some giants in the land. But God said by his word that is your land and he's going to lead you and conquer and take this land for you. Do you not remember 400 years of bondage? When you cried out and I saved you, I raised up a man, a deliverer named Moses to come and lead you out. You don't remember that? How he worked, I worked powerfully through him into ten plagues to, the, uh, to Pharaoh to show the power of God who's leading you out. Do you not remember that? Do you not remember that night you were saved by the blood of the lamb, a Passover night, that, that miraculous? Do you not remember that? Do you not remember when I saved you through that experience when we came to the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was coming down to mow you down and I parted the sea and you walked across the dry land and then I smothered up, with, I flooded over the, the army, took them all out, your enemies out for you? 
Do you not remember? You're that quick to forget what God has already done in your life? How about when you came to the point where I, there was no water and I, a rock opened up and, and, and it literally gave enough water to feed three, three million people? What about at the Mount Sinai moment when God's voice was actually heard from the mountain? You don't remember him saying with his words what he was going to do? They received daily care and provision with manna, miraculous. God's miraculous provision. He even provided a cloud and a fire to keep them cool and keep them warm through the desert. You don't, it, every day you experience it and you have unbelief now and you won't go into the promised land? Yes. They still lapsed in their, in their unbelief. All that God has done in their lives. Freeing from bondage. And they still yet had unbelief. They did not believe God's word. They would not follow God's word. They wouldn't be obedient to God's word. They had unbelief. What was the consequences of their unbelief? For turning away from the internal word of God by faith. What was their consequence? They didn't get to go in the promised land. Only two that had the faith got to go into the promised land. The rest, the entire generation of 20 years of age and older died in the wilderness going around and around and around for 40 years. And they died. Those who doubted Rejected God there at Kadesh Barnea paid a huge, huge price. Not just the fact that they didn't get to enter the promised land, but they also received the judgment of God. We see that clearly in Psalm 95. It describes how the Lord reacted to them when they had unbelief and would not follow their word and go into the promised land. He says there in 90, Psalm 95, verses 10 and 11, For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Unbelief will cause us not to find rest in our Lord. You will not have the peace. The warning here, Jude, is clear. The people of Israel did not endure to the end because they did not believe God's promise of power and protection. They did not keep themselves in the assurance that we have in God's love and provision. You have to hold on to God's love and provision of your life because if you don't, you're going to lose that assurance of, of steadiness in your life with Him and you will not have rest. You will not have peace. They ended up dying in the desert because of that unbelief. What's that final test for you and I as a believer? What's that final test coming at the end? I mean, Lord is coming back soon. What's, what is going to keep us strong at the end? Endurance. We must keep our eye on him and allow him to empower us to have that endurance to finish well of this Christian life. Because he's going to take us out of here and then we'll be completely fulfilled. Perfected. We've been justified. Like we've never sinned before. We've been sanctified. He's been doing a work in your lives. But when we get to heaven, all oh, the glorification will take place. Are you ready for that? I'm ready for that. I hope you're ready for that. Because it's going to be beautiful. Now we see in verse 6, he gives an next example. The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change until darkness for the judgment of that day. Oh, this is a very interesting verse. Jude's letter is famous for bringing up obscure and controversial points. And this is one of them. So let me go through 
and give you some things to think and ponder on today regarding this second example regards to angels and their domains and the impact on society at that time. Jude speaks of the angels who sinned. Who are now, make sure you see the words there, who are now in prison and awaiting a future day of judgment. They are locked up. They're reserved for an everlasting chains in darkness. So somehow, someway, these angels that are about to, we see in the scripture are locked up because they are really wicked and they went beyond what they were to do, proper their proper domain. But we see here that in that improper domain, some measure of controversy, yes, I understand that, but we see a couple of things here for angels. We only see two places in the Bible where it speaks of angels sinning. First was the original rebellion of the angels against God. We see that in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, and Revelation 12, verse 4. Two, those two places talk about the angels who God had created to worship him uh, to be in, in heaven, to, to, for, for ministering not only to him and worshiping him, but also to be used to minister to you and I. And one third of them, according to scripture, rebelled with Lucifer, Satan, the devil, and said, we want to follow Satan, Lucifer versus God, because Lucifer, the devil, Satan, wants to be in control, to be equal to God or higher. So what we find here, that that's the first sin. The second is the sin was of the sons of God described in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 2. And I'll read it for you. It says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now here's the debate. The debate is who is the sons of God? Well, in the scriptures, I lean toward it. It's described the sons of God as angelic beings. Or some people take the position that they're, they're people, they're humans that are following God. But again, we won't go down too much of this path because that could take a whole rest of the teaching just on this alone. So you have two different positions. You can say they're angelic, or you can say they're followers of God among humans. It's your position. It's not a, a contra- it doesn't have to be a divisional type thing. It's just part of the scripture you can meditate on. But I see where Jude really kind of helps us out with that question of who it is. Because it says, do not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. So you have to look at the language here. And it says, offensive, connected with some kind of sexual sin... We know that as well, such as sexual union between a rebellious angelic beings, the son of God, noted in Genesis 6-2, and the human beings, the daughters of men, we see noted in Genesis 6-2. And we know that there was some sexual aspect to the sin because Jude tells us in the following verse, verse 7 of Jude, that there's as like, like as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them in the similar manner of these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. And the words here are very similar in manner. To those refers back to the angels here noted in verse 6. But the words go, are connected with this strange flesh refers to this unnatural sexual union with women. Now we know that some unnatural sex union in Genesis 6, we know that there was some unnatural uh, product of unnatural offsprings, the development or the coming about of giants from that, that angelic slash and women sexual relationship, it produced this uh, offspring of giants. Now, this unnatural union was Satan's way to corrupt the genetic pool of mankind so that God had to result in finding a man named Noah and his family, a family of eight, who, why did God select that? Most people say, why did they select that? Well, we know 
because Genesis 6-9 says he was looking for a just man, perfect in his generations, which that translation means pure in his genetics. That his genetics are still pure. Because why? Satan wanted to ruin the genetic uh, of man so that the Messiah couldn't come about through those genetics. He was trying to every which way to destroy the need for a pure genetics as, as we see as lineage through the ages to, for the Messiah to come. So Satan was already at work trying to do this and this unnatural union prompted this incredible dramatic judgment of God upon these people, a global flood wiping out all mankind except that family of, of eight. Now, as for the specific details of the unnatural union, it is a useless speculation to go spend time down that path. We don't know how the fallen angel genetic material could mix with human genetic material to produce these, these giants. I just leave it as is. I know what the scripture says and I leave it there. It doesn't affect how I live my life. I don't focus on the angels and the fallen angels and giants and these things. I just part of the scriptures of understanding. Just know Satan will do whatever it takes to take you out and to stop the work of God. That I just, I just know. And it, we just see it even as far back in Noah's time. Now we see that God uses example using Jude to write this, that God used this example of angels, these wicked angels who went against God to set them into everlasting change, which is really a good thing because now we know that's not, not happening anymore. Once that took place, God said, you're locked up so that this will never happen again. So apparently some fallen angels are in bondage while others dem demons... The other fallen angels following the, the, the rule of, 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 of Lucifer, or Satan, are still out and about and still causing havoc for you and I. But we see here that some are locked up, and ultimately all the rest of them will be locked up. Praise the Lord. By not keeping their proper place, and doing what God said they were doing, it results in being judgment and being put into chains. How does that connect to you and I today? If you twist the grace of God, and you think you can be as a child of God and in the, use the grace of God to give you a license to go sin against God, you've lost your mind. You've been bewitched. Because grace does not give us a license to go sin. So the sinful pursuit of freedom by these angels put them into bondage. And that's the same thing for you and I. Don't forget this lesson here. Those who insist on the freedom to do whatever they want to do, wherever they want to do, and however they want to do, like these angels, using grace for justification to be able to continue to live in a sinful life, you are going to ultimately put yourself in what? Bondage. You'll find yourself in bondage. True freedom comes from, obe from obedience. True freedom comes from obedience. Don't forget that. If angels cannot break the chains sin brought upon them, how foolish you and I think that we can break our own chains of bondage. We can't set ourselves free from these chains. But we can only be set free by following Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can set you free from your bondage. Bondage within that little squirrely head. And life and circumstances, situations. This reminds us that these angels who sinned with an unnatural sexual union are no longer active. And with his life changing judgment back in the days of Noah, God put to an end to this kind of unnatural sexual union once and for all. The third example 
we see as like as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the link here with these angels and the as Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the ven the vengeance of eternal fire. God, all the way back there, was setting an example of what happens when you go against the word of God. Things go crazy and do strange things will start happening. And these Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around, they were a perfect example. God had blessed them. We know by the scripture in Genesis 13.10, this was the most absolutely blessed prosperous, privileged places for you to live. How do we know that? Because in the scripture, when um, Abraham and, Noah and Lot said, Lot, you pick first. What did he do? He turned and said, man, that place looks beautiful. That is gorgeous. It says in the scripture, it was well watered, every, well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. It's like the garden of Eden. It was so beautiful and perfect. They went, that's where I'm going to go to the north country. It's the most perfect place to live. I, yeah, that, okay. Yeah. That didn't go over well, huh? That's why I don't tell jokes. But it is for us. But Lot took it. But that place was so beautiful, it became so contaminated because it went against God. It became a place of vengeance of God and burned it all. Started well, didn't finish well. He, Jude is referring here to Genesis 19, where homosexual conduct of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah described even in Ezekiel 16.49. Talks about the wickedness, the depravity, the sexual depravity that was happening in the lands and judgment came upon them. The vengeance of eternal fire came upon them because of the fact they went after strange flesh. Then we see these certain men come back up here in verse 8. Likewise, also these dreamers, referring back up to verse 4, these certain men, dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Jude connected the certain men with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in, in their sexuality of that defile the flesh. And they're also the rejection of God's authority, the reject authority. When you don't follow God, you will have, your flesh will have a tendency to be defiled in many very perverted ways of thinking and acting, behavior. But you will also reject authority. You will reject authority at all levels, starting with family, church authority, police department. You name it, you'll see rejection of anything of authority, of a boss. It's no longer in my days of mom and dad just old-fashioned. That's child's play. That was the start of it. Nice, nice way of saying I reject you, mom and dad. You're just, you're old-fashioned. Oh, no, not today. Far worse. Kids don't say, I, I, you're old-fashioned. They clearly call many of parents out. Far worse today. Before, you were, you know, police were one thing. Now it's like, those, those, those people who are trying to save our lives, no, 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 that's all twisted now. We want to take their lives. It's twisted. It just shows the signs of the times. But these dreamers, these ungodly men, these ones who are creeping into the church, keep it in context. It's talking about the rejection of the authority of the church authority. Those who are elders and put into a leadership of the church body to oversee such as Jude. People will no longer listen. To someone who's been called by God to teach the word of God. They reject it. Once they hear the word, they don't want to hear it. 
They reject not only the word, but they reject the person who's actually teaching the word. But these dreamers, what does that mean? Well, Jude connects this certain men with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah with this sensuality, right? But Jude points clearly that these certain men rejected authority, which means they wanted to be in authority. When you reject authority, that means you think you should be in authority. You reject mom and dad, you think you should rule the house. You reject the police. You think you can do, rule your own little life and do whatever, you, however you want to live in society. But keep it in context. Judas saying people are creeping into the church, rejecting authority because you want to be in authority within the church. So they re not only rejected the authority of God, but then they reject those God who appointed in the authority to represent them. Today, our culture encourages us to reject authority. To recognize self as the only real authority in our lives. Who are you to tell me? See, in the darkest days of Israel's society was characterized by this term. We're studying it on Wednesday in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. We will also see it when we read to Judges 21, 25. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So there's nothing new under the sun. It happened then, it's now coming back today. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Today, this is the pattern, the way of the world, and it's the way of, especially in Western civilization, is prominent. Don't tell me how I live. I get to live however I want to live. And these dreamers, why did he use the word dreamer here in the Greek? We find that this means, that is more likely, it means that they, they, they claim to have this prophetic dreams. They come in and they creep into the church and they say, I have a, a God has given me a dream. And there's all these dreams and they do not line up with the word of God. What they are are dreams that are bringing in deceptions within the church. We have to be very careful of dreams. Test all things by the scripture before you start repeating it because you could be deceiving others with the sharing of that dream. Test all things. And then they don't stop there. Once they think they are in authority, they think they have some new revelation or dream from God to be able to share this new enlightened truth and you should follow me and I should be in charge. It never stops there. Then you see the next trait and that is when they start talking badly about the authority of, of, of God and the authority of people appointed to God. It's probably these dignitaries... Were the apostles or other leaders in the church, their rejection of authority was connected with their speaking these evil dignitaries, thinking they know more or better than God-appointed leaders. It's a trait that is out there. Then he continues and he gives an example of someone who would not speak of evil of dignitaries and a good example verse 9 yet Michael the archangel the archangel in contending with the devil Lucifer Satan right when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation but said the Lord rebuke you what does that mean? Why is that being used here? Why did Jude bring this in? Because he wanted us to have a good example, or they have a good example, of someone who is Michael the archangel, the only archangel. In the scripture, there is no plural archangel. There is only one archangel. The archangel who oversees all the good angels who did not rebel against God. Then you have Lucifer, Satan, the devil. It's only one. He's the devil. He oversees the ones of the angels who rebelled against God. He says, when they have this confrontation, which is amazing, 
this faithful angelic being named Michael going and butting heads with this unfaithful, unbelieving, wicked, demonic devil Lucifer, the angelic being who rebelled against God, who are enemies of God and man. Michael is for man and God, and Lucifer, the devil, is against God and man. And they had some kind of butting heads and confrontation and contending over what? Or who? The body of Moses. Now, when did that, why did that happen? It's one of those things and questions out there. But the angelic being here mentioned, like the, Michael the archangel, go back and read Daniel 10, Daniel 12. Revelation 12. Read that about Michael and his role. He's always a, 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 the fighter that fights against his equal, you would say, Lucifer, the devil. The devil and God are not equal. Understand that. Michael and the Lucifer would be of equals. But we see when this confrontation happens... And they're starting to butt heads over around and dispute around the body of Moses. We're not sure why, but the last time we heard about the body of Moses was in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the, man of, uh, the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in a land of Moab, opposite of Beth Peor. But no one knows the grave to this day. Then, even though we do not know where Jude received this kind of information, where Michael and Lucifer, the devil, had this confrontation. We don't see how that happened or how we got that information. He may have just received this unique revelation from God of writing it down, and that's how he received it. We don't even know exactly why they were disputing. It could be the devil anticipated a divine purpose of God using Moses' body, and the devil tried to defeat that plan of God. Then we go a little further in the scripture, and we see, we know that at and after his death, Jesus' death, Moses appeared in the body form at the transfiguration of Matthew 17, 1 through 3. With who? Elijah. Remember Elijah? He's one that was raptured or caught up by God. He did not die. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 2. Perhaps. Also, Moses and Elijah will be the two witnesses that will be used by God to reach the fallen and the nation of Israel in the last days. We see that in Revelation chapter 11. And God would use Moses' body, the future plan, and the devil's trying to stop that plan. But for Jude, the main point here isn't why Michael was disputing with the devil. But how he disputed with the devil. He didn't sit there and say, I stuck with God. I followed God. And now you have to blah, 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 and go against God, the devil. But notice the scripture, nowhere in the scripture. Where Michael and the devil are coming to battle, that's all they see is they're coming to battle to fight over to contend. Michael never did it in his own power his own way, he always fought under the authority of the Lord. First of all, for one of the cults out there, this scripture shows you that Michael is not Jesus. As some heretical groups teach. Jesus rebuked the devil in God's authority, not Michael's authority. Michael dared not bring against the devil a reviling accusation. So Michael did not mock the devil, did not accuse the devil. God hasn't called us to judge the devil. You and I are not called to judge the devil, let alone condemn the devil, to mock the devil or accuse the devil, or to battle against him one-on-one. -on -one. We are never to entertain that. 
And some religions out there actually do that. Devil, you and I are going to battle it out. And we're going to... You're a dead man. You don't battle against the devil. You battle him with the name of the Lord, just as we read right here. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord says, you get out of the house. Get out of that relationship. Only in the authority of the Lord's name. You and I have no power. So what happens here in verse 10? But these speak evil, these men, these, these ungodly men, these, 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 these deceivers, they're creeping, these creepy crawlers that come into the church and try to divide and conquer and take authority and take over and have people follow them and have their own little groupies and, oh, I'm going to start my own little, my, come to my house and come to this and let, let me get you, because I want you to follow me. I need to have my own, fo- watch out for that kind of stuff because that's what he's talking about. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. Notice that. They don't know what they're talking about. And whatever they know naturally are like brute beasts. And these things, they corrupt themselves. Woo, watch out for this. Because in contrast to Michael who said, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. He's No, no. These, they start challenging and they don't even know what they're challenging. They don't know what they're doing. These certain men speak evil. That's all they're doing. They speak evil. Why? Because there's a nature, like brute beasts, your natural instincts. If you want to be puffed up, you need to tear people down. You want to know someone who's weak? They're always tearing people down to make them look better. Bad trait. Not a godly trait at all. Tearing your boss down so you can look better is not a Christian way to live. Tearing someone down in the church so you can somehow get authority and a position because you don't you want because you you're you're desiring for a position and power and recognition is not godly. Not God. These certain men were, that's what they were trying to do. They were just their natural beast, brute mentality. Through force and domination, I'm going to get my way within the church. That's unbiblical, and it's unspiritual mind and behavior that they're naturally displaying from their lives. Now we see here. Three examples of these certain men. Look what happens and why they fell. Notice the first one. Verse 11. Woe to them for they have gone in the way of Cain. First example is Cain. What does he represent? His sin of hate and anger. Hate and anger is the life poster over the life of Cain. Cain's story is found in Genesis 4. Each of the sons of Adam and Eve brought an offering to the Lord, remember. Cain, being a farmer, brought an offering from his harvest. Abel was a shepherd. And when that time, he brought an offering from his flocks. And God accepted Abel's offering but rejected Cain's sacrifice. Now, many people assume, when you hear that, why did Cain and Abel, why did God reject Cain's offering? Many will assume because Abel brought a blood sacrifice and Cain brought a grain sacrifice, but that is not why God rejected it. He rejected because the difference was not because of the two offerings that was sacrificed that was rejected. The real difference was between faith and unbelief. That is why he rejected it. How do we know this? Hebrews 11.4 makes this very clear. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. 
through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, that Abel was righteous, living rightly with God. God testifying of his gifts through it, he being dead still speaks. Meaning, even after he died, it still shows and speaks of his life of righteousness, of living for God. Because he had belief. He had faith in God. Cain's sacrifice was probably more pleasing to the senses than some dead carcass of a dead lamb. A charcuterie board kind of a moment. But his sacrifice was offered without faith. Therefore, it was unacceptable to God. You can give to God, you can work for God, you can do all kinds of things for God. Whatever you have or wherever you are and do, but you must offer it in faith, not in unbelief. That is the determining factor if God is going to receive that sacrifice. See, in Genesis 4-5, it says that God rejected his sacrifice. Cain was very angry. He lost it. And his countenance fell. You ever see someone so angry? You see that look in their eye and you know. He became angry because he knew he was rejected by God. And what he tried to offer him. And do for him. And in a fit of rage and anger. Cain murdered his brother Abel. And then he lied about it to God, like he's going to be able to lie. Oh, I, I didn't, what are you talking about? But notice the scripture in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, that we just studied not too long ago. It tells us that Cain murdered his brother because, why? Because he was a goody two-shoe? That somehow Abel was poking him and saying, God rejected you, God rejected you, God And you stirred up my anger because you were poking me. No, no. Scripture tells us Cain murdered his brother because Abel's works were righteous by faith. While Cain's works were wicked, Cain's lack was not in the works that he did, but in the faith. Jude says that Cain symbolizes a way that these certain men were following. What was that certain way? It was the way of unbelief and empty religion. Who was of the wicked one? It's not like they were following God. They were of the wicked one. They were doing things that completely were going against God. Which leads to what? Jealousy. Persecution of the truly godly eventually will lead to murderous anger. It's the spiral down. That's why you cannot have bitterness. You cannot allow anger. You cannot allow resentment. You cannot allow those things in our lives. Because if you get a hold of you, you will spiral down and you'll be a cane. There's no greater curse on the earth than empty vain religion. Those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. We see that warning in 2 Timothy 3.5. No wonder Paul added, and from such people turn away. You don't mess with people in the fellowship who are, have this form of godliness, but deny the power. They're not following the word of God. They're not living for God. They're not living by faith. They have all believe they're evil speaking and doing all kinds of things. have nothing to do with them. Many Christians are afraid of secular humanism. Even atheism. People are afraid of that kind of a thing. But dead religion is far more dangerous than those two things. 
Why? Because it sends more people to hell than anything else as a false religion, a false belief that you're saved and going to heaven when you actually are not. These certain men were in the way of Cain, and it was which is the way of dead religion, and we must not have that. Follow the truth. I am the way. The truth is so important. Because you will not have the life, eternal life, if you do not have, follow the way, his way, and the truth, the word of God. You will not have eternal life. Don't be fooled. Second one is a certain, we have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. So we see the second one, which is a sin of greed. The, the certain men had greed in their lives. Look at it here. Balaam's story starts with Numbers chapter 2, or 22, to 25, and then 31. And it was during this time of Exodus, Israel advanced the land of Moab, and after defeating the Amorites, when the Israelites came near, King Balak of Moab looked up for the, and looked for help to say, how do we stop these Israelites coming in and taking over? So he turned to an Israeli prophet, a prophet that represented God, who spoke on behalf of God. Can you imagine a king using religion, a religious a poster child of religion to try to get their way? Can you imagine? No president would ever use some religious stature to try to sway the people to follow a wicked king. No, that wouldn't happen. Oh, just back in those days, right? Nothing new under the sun. So he turned to a prophet named Balaam. And this king, for time's sake, go back, you have to read it, Numbers 20, chapter 22 to 25 and 31. Go back and read this and see how greed this prophet said he was a hireling. Come, I'll hire you. Come and curse these people. Your people, Israel. They're coming. See them. Look at three million coming across. They're sitting on the mountains. They're looking down. I need you to curse them. He says, I got to talk to God first. God said, don't you t- dare curse them and go against my people. He told him, King, I can't, go, I can't go against God. I can't curse him. I can't say anything bad about him. I just can't do it. So what do, what do wicked people, greedy people do? He figured out Balaam. He says, okay, let's send the next entourage. And make sure you have the gold watches and the chains and the nice three-piece suits. and Make sure it's, it shows like we represent a lot of money. Let's see if the, the, this religious guy will, will bend then. Got his attention. He's still looking, even though God said, don't touch him. Don't even talk. Go, go, don't go with this man. Don't go with the king. But the money started speaking to his heart. He still said, ah, God says, don't touch it. Don't. Finally, God says, your heart says you're going to go do it. I'm going to take my hand off this. I told you you're not supposed to do it. And you're still coming and asking me to go do something against my people. Are you kidding me? You're out of your mind. God said, okay. Could never curse him. So Balaam all of a sudden said, hey, king, I can't. Every time I open my mouth, only blessings come out. I'm trying to say a curse and nothing but blessings coming out upon God's people. So he realized, uh-uh, here's a different approach. Send your women. Go send your women among the people. The Israelite men will fall for those women. And when the, your women introduce God's men to idolatry, God himself will turn angry and bring judgment upon the people. And that's exactly what happened. All because of greed of a religious man who was following the money and not being obedient to God. Be very careful. Then we see these certain men are then also displayed after being compromised with everything when it comes to money, covetousness was ruling their life. Anger, greed, covetousness, jealousy. I mean, it's just these certain men you see what's happening. The third one here, at the end of verse 11, we see, and perish in the rebellion of Korah. Korah. 
the rebellion of Korah. We find this in number 16. He was a prominent man in Israel one day, came to Moses, the leader, the spiritual leader of the congregation. And this guy, this guy shows up with his, all of his followings and says, you take too much upon yourself, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the congregation of the Lord? Doesn't that sound sweet? Pastor, you have, you're doing way too much. I, I'm, I'm here to help you. Me and my, father, my, guys, my guys are with me. I brought them with me. We're going to take some of the load off of you. You don't need to be like this. What are you, what are you doing? What do you think you should be leading? I think we, we should have a congrega- uh, uh, an elders-led or a congregational-led. Somehow introduction, we need to be in power. What does Moses do when he sees this? When Kor and his followers resented the authority of God and the fact that God appointed Moses and Aaron over the people, why do they think they're coming in and think Moses and Aaron needs to go out and we're supposed to come in and take over? Here is what we see as a start of a congregational split. It will end up of God's trimming dead branches and getting them out. How's that happen? Go back and read it. Number 16, when Korah said this, Moses immediately said, give me my sword, I'm taking this man's head off. Now that would have been my response. I wouldn't have done it, but at least would have thought it probably. Let me take your head off. No, no, Moses immediately fell down and started praying, turning to God. And out of that time, Moses says to Korah, let's propose the test. Each group has censers, burning incense, and came before the Lord. And the Lord himself would choose which man he wanted to represent him, Moses or Korah. You know the story. When they both came before God, the Lord told told Moses, take a step back. Move away from Korah. And what happened? God literally opened up the ground and swallowed Korah up. Now, that would have been a scene. And he wasn't done yet. When he took out Korah, he took out Korah and swallowed him up and his followers. And then God brought down fire from heaven and burned up each of his supporters. They all perished because they went against God and God's leaders. Woo! How about you? You don't want to go down a path of Korah. Rebellion, as Korah is here, even though he was a Levite, he was not a priestly family of Aaron. As a Levite, he still had his own God-appointed area of ministry. That God had appointed, this is what I want you to do. Stay within the realms. Don't ask for more. Don't try to take over. Just do what I'm asking you to do. But that he was not content with. He wanted position and power. He wanted the ministry of what he thought, not the authority and the position that Moses had. He wanted someone else's position. But that's not what God called and did not place him to be. Korah needed to learn in the congregation the essential lesson. We must work hard to fulfill everything that God has called us to be. And at the same time, we should never try to do or be what God has not called you to be. The rebellion of Korah is an example of God's rejection of someone who's trying to do something that God's not called them to do. Because they were coming against and God's appointed leaders. And there's only one ultimate leader and that's the mediator and that's Jesus Christ who runs the church. When certain men reject the authority and speak evil against the dignitaries or the leaders, 
They walk in the rebellion of Korah. Do not talk evil against God's leaders. Never will turn out well for you. Why? Because the rebellion of Korah is a disdainful, disrespectful, contemptuous, and determined assertion of self against the divinely appointed leaders. You're in trouble. Look at the example. Three men that God used through Judah to, uh, Jude to write in what he wanted to understand. Because it's not one kind of certain man. Notice, Cain was a farmer. Balaam was a prophet. Korah was a leader in Israel. So it doesn't matter where your background is. It can happen in anyone who has a heart that's of unbelief and goes against God. The apostasy is never confined to one group of people. There are apostasies in the poorhouse, in the pulpit, and in the palace. All walks of life. It's a heart issue. May we choose to follow our Lord Jesus, the word of God. And remember, we are warned about these certain men and women who could creep into the church. May the Lord protect us. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and for your love upon your people's, people's lives. We pray, Lord, that you, again, just draw us closer and closer and closer to you, that we would die of self and live for you, and that we would rejoice and be glad every day, that we, the day you've given us, so that we can serve you, praise you, and worship you, and just be about what you call us to do. But most of all, deepen our faith, our belief in you. Oh, help us with our unbelief, Lord. May we live for you, be ambassadors for you, in our families in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and in the church. We thank you again for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.